Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to the 10th chapter of Solomon's Proverbs. We will continue our study on what we've styled the antithesis. We'll begin our reading in verse 27. Proverbs 10, 27. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. The fear of the Lord prolongeth days, but the years of the wicked shall be shortened. The hope of the righteous shall be gladness, but the expectation of the wicked shall perish. The way of the Lord is strength to the upright, but destruction shall be to the workers of iniquity. The righteous shall never be removed, but the wicked shall not inhabit the earth. The mouth of the just bringeth forth wisdom, but the froward tongue shall be cut out. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked speaketh frowardness. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. Again from the Reverend Charles Bridges. But the wicked, they too have their expectations. For none have a stronger hope than those who have no ground for hope. And this delusion too often reaches to the moment of eternity, nay, even to the day of the Lord, to the very throne of God, expecting the door to be opened to them after it has been shut forever, as if dreaming of heaven and waking in hell. The expectation of the wicked shall perish. Christian, make sure the ground of your hope. Then set out its gladness as becometh an heir of glory. Let not a drooping spirit tell the world of the scantiness of your hope. But let it be seen that you can live upon it with joy and gladness. Until you enter into its perfect and everlasting fruition. Well said, Mr. Bridges. Last week we began in Proverbs 10.27. We, we said that the, the balance of this passage, the end of the chapter, it speaks so largely of that what we call the antithesis between right and wrong, good and evil, the people of God and the people of this world, the, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent those who love God, those who hate Him, those whom He loves and those whom He hates, that there is a great divide in humanity. And we have indeed taken notice of that before we take notice of it again in this passage in 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 verses. uh, Solomon goes down six different ways of showing the difference between the righteous and the wicked. An antithetical proverb after an antithetical proverb. Bang, 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 bang. Bang, if you want six. (laughs) And so uh, we have taken this as an opportunity to say, you know, let us go ahead and talk about the antithesis for a while. We have a couple of things to do here before we get to the balance of the passage. So today I'd like to speak with you about uh, more of the antithesis. We, we talked briefly about some things last week. We had a shortened time. And then uh, I want to talk about the antithesis with regard to persons and then with regard to the way. There is an antithesis of persons, but there's also an antithesis of ways in the Bible. Right? There's the way of life stretched over against the way of death. And there are persons that are on those two different ways. Then what I'd like to do is work with you for a little bit Because we are, like the Apostle will say, we are not uh, supposed to go out of this world. We're not uh, altogether to avoid company with unbelievers. There are upright ways of doing business and interacting with unbelievers. A part of which is the way unbelievers come into contact with the gospel. But even beyond that, more than that, there is upright ways that we can do that. I want to talk with you about that more roundly next week. And then 
uh, we will dive into the passages themselves, these, these uh, antitheses, and we'll take a look at them. And part of the expectation, children, this is a very interesting thing for you especially to think about, the children of the church, because what the Apostle Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 6 is that obedience, generally considered, is a longevity thing, right? Obedience is a longevity thing. Children, as you obey your parents growing up, the Lord blesses you and says that it may be well with thee and thou mayest live long upon the earth. All other things being equal, as far as it serves for God's glory and, and your good, it will be a promise of long life. Does God ever take away the righteous early? He does, and we'll see why he does that, because the Bible also teaches us that. But we'll find that the expectation of the wicked is that he shall be cut off early. And the wicked there, it it seems that they meet the same end as those who are disobedient to parents. So, very interesting things to think about as we move forward. We're not quite there yet, though. There are a few things that I wanted to speak with you about as we uh, introduced the two humanities last week. We got as far as Cain and Abel, and we saw that John Baptist... Uh, and Christ both made made use of that. They said that that when the Pharisees were coming out of Jerusalem, they said, you know what this looks like? This looks like a city that's on fire and all the snakes are fleeing from it. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? And by saying brood of vipers or generation of vipers, They were relating, Jesus and John, were relating those Pharisees to the seed of the serpent all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, which we looked at. And we saw that immediately in the first family, there was that same division between Cain and Abel. And not only John Baptist, but John the Apostle makes that notice as well. When speaking in his epistle, he speaks of Cain who was, quote, of the wicked one. So we're not left to guess on those things. This antithetical understanding, this is scriptural, it runs from one end of the Bible to the other. And the Lord has been kind to us in, in drawing uh, our attention to this. Okay, so we've described these as two humanities or two races of men, the wicked and the righteous, the believing and the unbelieving, those who know the Lord and those who do not. Often in scripture they they are classed as Jews and Gentiles. Even after we get into the New Testament. Because that parlance is so common among the people of God in that day. Sometimes unbelievers are spoken of merely as Gentiles. Although many Gentiles had come to faith in Christ. And Jews are spoken of as believers. Right at the end of Romans chapter 2. The apostle uh, Paul will, will say he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Circumcision of the heart and not in the letter, right? These are the children of Abraham, is how he puts it in Galatians chapter 3, we've already seen in our reading. The other way that, the, that, that, that people are, are described in, in the New Testament, this is not just an Old Testament Jew-Gentile thing, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there are three passages I'd like to look at with you here. 1 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 12. This is that chapter on church discipline, right? For what have I to do, verse 12, to judge them that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within. But them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Paul is saying there's a guy in your midst, but he actually should be treated like one who is not in your midst. He is without. There are those who are without and those who are within. Now, beloved, this will always be, won't it, an imperfect science in the visible church. And we've recognized that before. We we think that it was an error for some of our, our dearly beloved fathers in the faith uh, around the you know the late 17th and early 18th centuries in this country, and and then even l- later than that, when especially in the area of New England, there was a 
There was a press. There was a particular effort on the part of churchmen to have what they called a, quote, regenerate church membership. Now, we will, we will accede to that desire. That's a good desire. Would that all God's people were prophets, as Moses will say, uh, you know, all the way back in Numbers. Would that all God's people were prophets. Surely we would, we would desire that. But the Lord in his wisdom and in his providence has indeed uh, styled the church, the visible church, as a mixed multitude. And so church discipline becomes necessary. As we see here in 1 Corinthians 5 that we may find out through some behavior that is finally and scandalously revealed that there are those that are among us that are not really among us. The Apostle John in chapter 2 in his epistle will say they went out from us because they were not of us. And that's why they went out. That doesn't mean they were never members of the church. It just means they were never truly of us. There is such a thing as unbelievers in the visible church. Rutherford will say that in fact the unbelievers are drawn into the visible church that they might hear the gospel. And be saved. The unbelieving elect are drawn into the church. And God in his good time, whenever that will be, according to his providence and according to his decree, will draw them to faith in Christ in his good time. Whether that's right at the time they join the church or decades later. That's up to him. Right? And so, yes, we must be vigilant. There, there is this concept in the New Testament of those who are in and out. Those who are without and within. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 5, walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. The apostle makes it known there that while we do acknowledge the antithesis, we do not acknowledge as a remedy to the antithesis world flight. He doesn't say cut off all contacts with those that are without. What does he say? Walk in wisdom toward them. What is the problem with world flight, beloved? Well, like we said a moment ago, the visible church is a mixed multitude. And so, if world flight is going to be your answer to avoiding contact with unbelievers, when you retreat from the world, end up in your cloister, you still have to look in the mirror. You still have to look at yourselves, ourselves. And I'm not exempt as a minister. There have been many ministers throughout the history of the church that were unbelievers that God used for the preaching of his gospel. Several of them are spoken of in Matthew chapter 7. We've done mighty works in your name. And Christ will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. You've not done the will of my Father, which is in heaven. So I'm not just preaching at you, I'm preaching at me. There are those without that are within. And yet, we owe to one another the judgment of charity with regard to those who stand in good standing in our church memberships. And I say memberships because I'm talking about not just this church here, but other churches that have a competent gospel witness, our true gospel preaching churches, and their memberships as well. And we treat one another as offering that judgment of charity until such time as we are forced to say through stubbornness, recalcitrance, refusal to repent, and scandal, I'm sorry, you are not one of us. Or until they remove themselves from us. And that happens as well, doesn't it? But there is such a thing as those that are without and those that are within, and we must understand that in that proper context. The, uh, the third passage in the New Testament that I'd like you to look at is uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. <clears throat> Verse 11, And that ye study to be quiet, and to do your own business, and to work with your own hands, as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without and that ye may have lack of nothing. Notice that the New Testament makes this distinction between those who are in and out of the church. Very importantly, 
And we are commanded to walk in wisdom toward them. And a part of walking in wisdom toward them is to make sure that we take care of our own business. Isn't that what Paul says here? Most of you will remember 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 where Paul says, we hear reports that there are some of you not working at all but are busybodies. Now those that are such, we command that they labor and work with their own hands. And if they don't, then have no fellowship with him. In other words, make sure he's without. Okay, so there is, even within the church, this thing to be, to be cared for, to be undertaken. This is why we have such passages in the Bible as Matthew 18. We have a certain procedure that we follow. If you have a private offense, one with another, you go and you handle that. And beloved, I would tell you, as I've told you before, so I say again, without fear of, of being in error. And that is that if person A, who was offended by person B, went directly to person B and said, we have something that we need to talk about here. If we did that, then 95% of difficulties, I think, would be taken care of in the church. Sadly, what often happens is person A is offended by person B, so person A goes to person C, gives up all of the information, looking for commiseration, and then we have a triangulation problem. And that's right, it just expands from there. Right? So, uh, Matthew chapter 18 is given to the people of God to maintain that proper internal unity that we ought to have one with another. The second thing that, that I'd like to distinguish between those that are within and those that are without is that our Lord Jesus Christ has been pleased uh, throughout the scripture to reveal that those that are within, he treats as his friends, draws them near, and opens up their understanding. This is a privilege of what it means to belong to Christ. He will say in several different places, we'll look at a couple of them only, but in several different places of Scripture, he will say that one of the things that God does to those that love him, to those that are called according to his purpose, to those whom he has called to himself, is he doesn't keep secrets from them. He opens up their understanding and reveals truth to them. And guess what? He doesn't do that for the wicked. Not at all. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 13 for a moment. What a privilege it is to name the name of Christ, to be in good standing with the visible church, and also to, to go even beyond that and to be vitally connected to Christ as we've been talking about in the morning service. Because one of those benefits in so doing is that Jesus promises to reveal secrets to you. Fascinating stuff. Matthew chapter 13, verse 10. And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou in, uh, unto them in parables? He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away, even that he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. For the for this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed be your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. Now he says, hear the parable of the sower. And he will go on and explain it. What a setup, right? What a setup to hear what Christ was about to tell them. He apprises them of their privilege 
to hear because he has drawn them near. Jesus will say, we'll not take the time to turn to these passages, you will recognize them. Jesus will say to his, uh, uh, to his disciples in the upper room discourse, he will say, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant knoweth not what his master doeth. I call you my friends, because all things I have received of my father I have given unto you. Abraham, in the, book, in, in the prophecy of, my, of, of Micah, will be called the friend of God. It's Amos, sorry. In the prophecy of Amos, he'll be called the friend of God. Why is Abraham called the friend of God? Well, you remember what happens in the transpiring between uh, God and Abraham in Genesis 18. Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I shall do? And of course, the rhetorical answer to that is no, I'm not going to hide it. I've drawn Abraham near. He will become a great and mighty nation. He's going to command his children after them. They will know and keep the ways of the Lord. So let me interact with Abraham on this, this city of Sodom and the case of Lot. No, I will not hide from what I'm going to do. I will tell him. And what does Abraham do? Well, we find him asking questions. And that humbly, right? Oh, I have dared to speak to the Lord. Please allow me this one more, right? 50 and then 40 and then 30 and then 20 and then 10 people. If there are 10 righteous in the city, Lord, if there are 10, will you destroy the city? Of course, he's thinking about Lot. And the Lord says, no. Abraham is satisfied. He doesn't ask him, what about Lot? He's satisfied that the Lord's mercy is good. And so, what does the Lord do? Well, he says, there aren't ten in the city. So I'll send my angels first to take out the less than ten before I destroy the city. And so that's what the Lord's plan was. And I believe that Abraham was able to put two and two together. He knew the angels were heading on down to Sodom. And so what does God do with his saints, with those who he calls the righteous? Well, he draws them near and he reveals truth to them. Note in Psalm 25, as psalm singers, we've sung this before. Did we notice what what was being said there? Psalm 25 will begin in verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore will he teach sinners in the way. The meek will he guide in judgment, the meek will he teach his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For thy name's sake, Lord, O Lord, pardon mine iniquity, for it is great. What man is he that feareth the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way that he shall choose. His soul shall dwell at ease and his seed shall inherit the earth. And here is the culmination. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him and he will show them his covenant. And then notice the response of the faithful. Mine eyes are ever toward the Lord for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Turn thee unto me and have mercy upon me for I am desolate and afflicted and so on. Well, these are wonderful statements that teach us about the Lord's revealing truth to those that are his. Just another advantage that God gives. And remember that when God gives advantage, it is out of his free favor. And when God denies advantage, it is out of his justice. And that God is upright in all of his ways. And so, as Christ said in Matthew 13, to you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. But to them, not only is it not given to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but even that little which they have is going to be taken from them. Evil men shall wax worse and worse. The light that they have will be darker and darker and darker. These are differences that the Bible sets out. Right? Before us. That passage in the upper room discourse that we referenced a moment ago, that is John 15, 13 through 15. All right, we have also seen in in history example and in precept that when the righteous and the wicked mix and the righteous do not guard their associations, the results are almost universally disastrous. I might, I might pull up from my notes here and just say a, just say a word here. I have talked to people that have their, their children, Christian parents, that have their children in 
public school. Now, you know my, my view on that. Um, I would never make that a term of membership or church discipline or anything like that. We can't rule unilaterally like that because we don't know every circumstance. There may be a time when public school is the only alternative and we have to hold our nose and move forward. I think that's going to be rare, but it is possible. But there are Christian parents that put their children in public school so that they can be you know, missionaries in the public school. The example of the Bible is always opposite of that. That your children become the evangelized with the bad news of the world, not the other way around. That is always how the scriptures present it. Okay, universally. The Bible never says, go mingle with wicked people in order that you can save them. This is important stuff, people. Rather, it always points the other direction. That when we see the righteous mingling with the wicked, we have this horrible effect. Uh, The the other thing that was popular, I I, I imagine it might still be popular in some churches, but there was what, (laughs) you know... Some of this bends credulity, but we put teenagers out and we say, you're going to go missionary dating. Right? Teenagers are put with other teenagers in, you know, hours and hours of alone time and you're going to evangelize. It's not what happens, beloved. That's not what, go- that's not what takes place. Rather, the other takes place. And so there's been a lot of Heartache that has developed over the years by simply not compassing the scriptures from one end to the other and taking those historical examples and direct preceptive command that we are not to mingle in that way with unbelievers. Not world flight, we talked about that a moment ago, but we are not to mingle in that way. The first has to do with marriage in Genesis chapter 6. It's not an unfamiliar passage. We've talked about it before. We can be brief. But the human race is divided along the lines of the antithesis very early. The offspring of Seth, who takes, place, takes the place of Abel, and the offspring of Cain. And they are called the sons of God and the daughters of men. Now, turn away from that silly, borderline ridiculous interpretation that has angels or fallen angels intermarrying with people. Turn away from that. That's given by people that say you should mingle your children with unbelievers. That's how that works. Actually, what is said here is that the sons of God, that is the godly line of Seth, who took the place of Abel, you know, men such as Noah, right, Enos, that line, what did they do? They began to look upon the daughters of men, and what did they see? That they were fair. That became the criterion of their choosing wives, that they were fair. They didn't care if they were godly or not. They cared whether or not they were fair. And so what happened? The godly line mingled with the seed of the serpent, and the whole world was plunged into such a darkness and violence that God wiped it out. And started anew with Noah and his family. And we see that even in the family of Noah, the seed of the serpent remained. Right? Okay, so this, this passage here, this, uh, this commandment will be played out over and over again. Especially with regard to marriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 39. All the way down there through the centuries. What does... Um, What does Paul say to the Corinthians there in chapter 7? That if a woman has a husband that dies, that she is free to remarry whomsoever she will, with one exception, only in the Lord. That's it. Only in the Lord. Again, we want to make sure that our most intimate associations are with the godly and not with the ungodly. We must acknowledge, beloved, there are two humanities. And we must order our affairs rightly. Children, this works for you. 
But children, the other instruction that I want to give you is, okay, some of you are nearer or farther away from that time. Parents are saying, please, Pastor, don't bring it up. I don't, yeah, I don't want to talk about that. No, it's okay. We have to talk about it. Children, you're going to grow up and you're going to desire a, a, a husband or a wife. Okay, so what you're going to do is you're going to search out a godly husband or wife, and you're going to work with your parents to help you with that. That's the Bible way. And if we turn away from the Bible's way of doing things, what are we going to have? Well, at very least, we're going to have heartache. And at worst, we may lose our souls. Beloved, these are soul-losing things. What happened to King Solomon? Were it not for the grace of God in Solomon's life, toward the end of his life, in the book of Ecclesiastes, he returns to the Lord. But he married foreign wives and even sacrificed to their gods. Someone as wise and upright as Solomon, if he can fail in this, any of us can. So choose a, a godly mate. That's a must-have. Fair, handsome, that's a nice-to-have. Right? Godly, that's a must-have. Your parents' approval, help, and counsel, that's a must-have. That's the Bible way. The Bible never, ever tells you, you must marry a handsome prince or a beautiful princess. But the Bible does tell you, marry in the Lord and make use of your parents' counsel in it. Those things can be shown from Scripture. So in Genesis chapter 6, in First uh, Corinthians chapter 7 in Deuteronomy chapter 7 as well. <clears throat> Verse 1. When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land whither thou goest to possess it and hath cast out many nations before thee the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites seven nations greater and mightier than thou. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his son, or sorry, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. Notice which way the dynamic goes. It doesn't say marry them, bring them into the covenant, and they'll be converted. It says you'll be converted to their ways. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you and will be a father Unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. This is how we do that. One of the ways we do that is to keep a separated existence. Again, not world flight, but a separated existence with regard to our thought paradigms, to bringing every thought captive to Christ, to having scripture as our basis, as our modus operandi, to remain separate from the world in all of its evils, and to remain united to the people of God in all good things. We must not fail in this mission, beloved. It is true. That the world is divided 
into two races of people. In Ezra chapter 9, 1 through 12, Nehemiah 13, 23 through 26, and Psalm 106, 35, we see that same thing about marriage being brought up yet again. Remember, Ezra pulls his beard out over that. He grabs clumps of hair from his beard. I get, ow. This is how sorely affected by intermingling, intermarriages with heathens. He's, and in Nehemiah it says, and such that some of the, of the children of those marriages, they can't even speak Hebrew. They can't go to church. They can't hear the word of God preached because they're speaking a language that is no longer our language. Right? We see the sad effects of this. One of the saddest ones, we don't have time to read the entire story, is to remember the heart of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was a big-hearted king. He was a godly king. He did a lot of great things, as, as we talked about last service. But one of the things that he did that was not good is he went to Ahab, and he said to Ahab, my people are as your people. Your people are as my people. On the way home from that encounter, Jehu the prophet will confront King Jehoshaphat. Why shouldst thou help the ungodly? You remember that? Okay. Well, you might say, okay, so they went out and they had a couple of meetings. They did common cause. And Jehoshaphat went home and was rebuked by the prophet. And all is well. Thankfully, it wasn't disastrous. Hold up there a moment. And let's remember that Jehoshaphat's son married Ahab's daughter. That's right. That's how Athaliah came into the southern kingdom. And when uh, Jehoshaphat's son died, Athaliah rose up, killed all the seed royal, and then claimed the monarchy to herself and, and, was, and was over the land for six or seven years until Joash and Jehoiada, the high priest, rose up. Because, beloved, this is, a, this is an affecting word, but it's true. Sometimes the associations that we make have that greater moral effect upon our children rather than ourselves. Clearly, clearly, beloved, we must guard the integrity and the sanctity of our homes as those homes dedicated to God. When Jehoshaphat failed to do that and went with common cause to the northern kingdom, his son married Ahab's daughter. Athaliah came south and was soon queen and a murderous one at that. So very, very clearly, we must run clearly from such things in our own homes. We learn from the apostle in this general teaching of 1 Corinthians 15.33. Notice this is that tendency, that trending that the scriptures always present. What will Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15.33? Be not deceived, my beloved brethren. Evil communications corrupt good morals, good manners. Literally, what, what he means by evil communications is not this kind of communication but the communication of an association. The wrong kinds of associations that are based in evil. What do they do? They corrupt our morals. The Greek word is ethos there. It is not such that we, will, that we can you know, have an effect. The Bible doesn't tell us to do that. The Bible tells us to be ready with an answer. The Bible tells us to speak in the gates. The Bible tells us that we don't flee the world, we interact with them, but we don't join with them in some kind of common cause where we're going to evangelize this organization or this business or this other thing. No, those kinds of associations tend to corruption. In 1 Corinthians 5-6, the Apostle Paul will be especially zealous for the church when he will say, cast out the old leaven. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? 
a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And what does he mean by that? Well, we have said this before. I, I, I think we often miss the point of church discipline. Uh, the first thing is that it is for the honor of Christ. This is notoriously openly proclaimed. Churches are proclaimed to be the very body of Christ, the kingdom and house of Christ. If the house is evil, it speaks badly for the, for the householder, for the king, the son over the house, the head. So for the sake of Christ's honor, the church must be kept pure. But secondly, for the purity of the body itself, that this become not a place of infection, but a place of inoculation, a place of remedy, not a place of, of spiritual harm. And so, beloved, Paul will say, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Christ is especially jealous for his church. This is the place where notoriously we are the people of God. And so we must maintain that testimony. And then the third reason for church discipline is indeed that the, for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of Christ. And I've told you what I believe on that already. It is that we're, we are looking there at the destruction of that flesh or that fleshly behavior that the spirit may be saved in the day of Christ. That is the day of Christ moving powerfully, graciously upon that soul. There are times when correction in the church is not enough. The apostle writes in Titus 3.10, a man that is an heretic after a first and second admonition, refuse, knowing that such a one is, is perverted, being self-condemned. He's condemned of himself. Everything else, all of the correction and instruction that he's received from the church is for his correction. Not for his condemnation. But he condemns himself in that he digs in his heels. And will not take warning. And so must be put out. We note that the love of, that, that God has for his elect. Does not entail that they should be taken out of this world. But while in this world that they should be kept from evil. Isn't that interesting? That the Lord has designed because of his great mercy, because those who are his people, they come out of the stock and store of those who are not. Right? There's that parable uh, that Christ tells about the wheat and the tares. You, you know that parable, right? Let them grow together until the harvest is the word of the owner of the field. Let them grow together until the harvest. I think many commentators are confused over that. I think Rutherford has it right. Here's what he thinks it says, and I'm inclined to agree with him, that the wheat and the tares, the, you know, the field is the world. That's the explanation that Christ gives. So they're going to be wheat and tares growing next to each other in the world. We might be less tolerant than Christ is of letting those tares grow. We don't understand that. Why is there so much evil in the world, Lord? Because some that are tares today will be wheat tomorrow. And so we're not to flee out of the world, but we are kept from evil. As a part of Christ's intercessory prayer in John 17. Please turn with me there for a moment. Verse 14, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. You see the antithesis there, very plainly set out by Christ. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. The evil is a literal translation. Sometimes, however, uh, the, an adjective like that, the evil, becomes a substantive, and especially with the, um, with the definite article, we may even translate this rightly as the evil one. The evil one in his ways, the evil one in his wiles, the evil one and the destruction that he would desire to do upon the people of God. 
And so what is being said here? Jesus does not pray for his church that they would be taken out of the world. You know, it's not hold on with white knuckles till the rapture. It's not what's being said here. Instead, Jesus prays that while in this world, that it is God's design that we remain in this world, that we would be kept from apostasy, kept from that evil one. That the Lord himself would keep us in our necessary contact with the world around us. And how would we fulfill that prayer, beloved? How would we put feet receiving instruction from Christ in this prayer? How would we do that? How would we be kept from the evil one? Even while in the midst of the world. Would it not be to guard our association? To watch over our children's associations. What we bring into our homes via media and magazine and newspaper and other such things. How we keep and guard the sanctity of our homes for Christ Jesus' sake. If Jesus has prayed that we should be kept from the evil one, let us not then unnecessarily expose ourselves to that. That may not be the same prescription for everyone in everything. But beloved, certainly there are things where each of us might say, this doesn't belong here in my home. If I have to give answer for this being here, it's not going to be here. There is such a thing as good and evil. There is such a thing as, as keeping oneself as it is said, unspotted from the world. James says that. To keep oneself unspotted from the world. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and pull up here for today with a couple of encouragements. The first encouragement I have for you is this. That while we have painted a very bleak picture of what associations do. This is indeed the, the, the picture that the Bible paints. We also have statements like we just read in John 17. What is it? Matthew 22. Where the Lord looks at Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, <laughs> Satan hath desired to sift you like wheat. You remember that? If you're Simon... Do you just not feel the shiver that goes down to your heels? What? Satan's taken a special target upon me? But what does Jesus say? But I have prayed for thee. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Beloved, we have painted a bleak picture because the Bible, God's word, teaches us to abhor evil in its manifestations, its temptations, its occasions, right? In all of those things, in all of its appearances. What will Paul tell the Thessalonians at 1 Thessalonians 5, 23? Avoid every appearance of evil. Not just evil. Not just temptations to evil. Not just occasions of evil. But if it looks fishy, stay away from it. And the Lord yet has prayed that we should remain in this world. Under his mediation and protection. And if he has indeed prayed that we should remain in this world. And yet under his mediation and protection. We can trust him. We can trust him that when we take those steps. To keep ourselves unspotted from the world. He will honor those steps. He will make them effectual. He will indeed add those uh, those promises of his to those means that are being used. When we give our minds to scripture and meditation upon it, pushing out worldly thoughts, car carnal thoughts, when we confess and endeavor to forsake our sins, when we guard our associations and communications, the Lord will indeed, in measure, uh, join with those labors and fulfill the promises and prayers that he's prayed for us. There is success in this life. While remaining in this world. And in some sense associated with it. 
This is what I'd like to talk with you about a little bit later. Still, we can remain a holy people. And this is what the call is. When we recognize from Proverbs chapter 10, the polar difference between the righteous and the wicked. Beloved, we recognize our responsibility to make use of every means to remain a holy people separated from the wicked ones. In everything. In the way that we think. In the reason we get up in the morning and go to work. Or work around the house. Students, in the way that we take up our studies. Because whether we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, we're doing it for the glory of God. So, there is such a thing as this great divide of humanity. We will indeed deal with this divide all throughout our days. But let us deal rightly with it. And let us apply to Christ that he would indeed, according to his promise, uphold us in our goings, strengthen us in our ways. The second antithesis I'd like to speak with you about uh, next week will be the antithesis of the way. There is a way of life and a way of death. There's a way that leads to life and a way that leads to death. And we're going to find that the company on each of those ways is commensurate with what we've been talking about already today. So, beloved, take courage in that while this world is dark, we shine as lights in the midst of a crooked generation. Why? Because Christ shines in us. Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for that which we have heard from Thy Word this day. O Lord, help us uh, to hear what Thou hast said in Thy Word about the trending and tendency of evil associations and what they do. As we have seen that play out in the old world, the pre-Diluvian world. As we've seen that play out time and time again, even perhaps in our own friends, in other acquaintances, in others that we've known. As we see thy commands that, that keep us from such evils as those. Lord, we pray that we would not trust in means, but that we would set our sights upon what it is to please thee in remaining separate from evil in this world. While uh, not free altogether from contact with this world. Oh Lord, help us then to, uh, to run in that way that will lead to life and to find on that way those companions that will encourage us in those ways. And Lord, at all times to apply unto thee for thy protection, comfort, and help. We pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.